From the 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories Storytelling Show This is Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez Stories and conversations with immigrants, refugees, second, third generations, and allies where we explore the ideas, policies, and histories that forge national identity, community, and belonging in America. We are your hosts, Angel Ling and Nestor Gómez. Growing up as an immigrant in the U.S. can be quite daunting. Who are we in this place we now call home? With whom can we place our trust? And how do we have conversations that are not just cross-generational, but cross-cultural? We explored these questions in today's episode with New York City storyteller David Hugh. First, here's Dave's story as told on stage for 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories on February 16, 2019 at the Caveat in Manhattan. Mom and Dad immigrated to New York from Hong Kong in 1970 for a better life. With only $500 in their pocket, they found an amazing apartment on Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx. Beautiful neighborhood, full of trees, parks, and everyone wore expensive fur coats from Saks Fifth Avenue. <laughs> it was an American dream for my mom and dad, until a couple years later, that dream became a nightmare because crime, drugs, and violence plagued the neighborhood. The, bar, the park became a war zone for drug dealers and gangs. The trees are filled with garbage, and all those folks with their expensive fur coats ended up moving to Scarsdale, New York. As a seven-year-old growing up in the Bronx, first-generation American in the early 80s, the lobby of our building was like a fucking zoo, just chock full of shit and puke, and the sight and smell just made me nauseous every day. As soon as we got to our apartment and locked the doors, mom and dad rarely let me outside to play. Growing up, I felt sheltered and alone because there were no kids my age to hang out with and we were only Asian family in a black and Spanish neighborhood. That's right, we stood out like a yellow post-it <laughs> and a box full of assorted chocolates. And I spent my days watching TV and staring outside our window from the second floor apartment. And I always saw the kids outside just looking mad fresh with their shiny black members-only jackets zipped up, their blue Levi jeans and their high-top pony sneakers, smoking blondes, drinking 40s, and listening to Grandmaster Flash on their Panasonic boombox radios. I was like, wow, I'm going to be just like them, the Jackson 5. <laughs> and every day... I begged mom and dad to let me hang out with those kids, but like a broken record, no good, stay home, watch TV, do homework, watch TV, okay? All right, I got it the first time, chill. <laughs> and that's what I did. I sat down and I watched TV. And one of my favorite TV shows growing up was High Feather. It was a show about a bunch of white kids that go to summer camp. And I just got so fascinated watching those kids swimming in the lake and singing songs over a campfire. I was like, I want to be just like them. And one day I walked up to my mom. I said, Mommy, Mommy, can you please take me camping? Please, please. And she was like, well, okay. So she goes to our bedroom. She takes out a queen-size bed sheet 
As she pitches this huge tent in our living room, we order Chinese takeout and watch Silver Spoons. <laughs> One afternoon, I walked up to my dad. Dad, 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 can you take me fishing, please, please? He said, well, okay. He fills up our bathtub with ice-cold water, oh, no. takes a can of sardines and dumps it in there. And he got me like a toy fishing rod, and we just go fishing. Mom and Dad made it really fun living in that apartment until things turned for the worse one evening. I was in the kitchen with my mom, and we're waiting for my dad to come home. It was like close to midnight. And I hear my dad come up to the door because you could tell he had like about a thousand keys on his belt loop. And I hear the key go into the lock of the door, and it doesn't turn. And my mom walks up to the door, and she's like, what's happening? As she's talking to him through the people. And I hear steps, and they're getting louder and louder. And my mom's saying, merci, ya. Oh, my God. Hiya. And I hear someone scream, give me your fucking money, or I'll cut your throat, you fucking chink. And I just heard screaming and yelling, and just the sounds of fists just echoing throughout the lobby of the building as my mom looks through that people in fear. Soon, the footsteps just dissolve throughout the evening, and I hear that key turn in the lock, and my dad just rushes into the apartment and slams the door shut with his back. He's white as his ghost. He's blood red in the face. His white button-down shirt is untucked and ripped, and he's holding his fist in his hand, and I can see blood just dripping throughout the knuckles of his fingers onto our kitchen floor, and you see the pool of blood just coming towards my feet. I just stand there in fear and curiosity just running through my head. And my mom screams, David, David, just go back to sleep. Stop making trouble. It's late. And the last thing I remember was my mom taking the kitchen towel and just wrapping my dad's fist like a fighter during halftime. The next day we moved because my grandpa, rest in peace, gave us $45,000, which was his life savings for us to purchase a house. And we moved to Pelham Parkway in the Bronx with a big backyard surrounded by trees. And every summer, I went to camp and swam in the link and sing, sung songs over a campfire. Looking back at it today, mom, my parents were not just, mom and dad were not just my parents, but were like my guardian angels, just trying to protect me from crime, drugs, and violence. And today, during the 70s and 80s, and I became their guardian angels. Thank you. Growing up in the Bronx in the 80s, Dave and his family found themselves negotiating some difficult social issues that were brewing in America, like race, crime, and economic injustice. Here's Dave again in my interview with him in Brooklyn. Because I always felt alienated in my life. I almost kind of like never felt like I fit in no matter where I was. Because I know I mentioned that, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a like predominantly black and Spanish neighborhood. And just feeling awkward, like a yellow post-it in a box mm-hmm. of sorry chocolates. But then we end up moving in a predominantly white neighborhood. Like kind mm-hmm. of almost like a blue-collar white neighborhood. And we still felt like a yellow post-it, except on like a white picket fence. And 
I felt like um, just living in that neighborhood, all the looked really nice. I felt like everyone was like in their own own little world. It's like when we were living on Valentine's Avenue in the Bronx, everyone was living in their own apartments in the building in units. But living in Pelham Parkway, everyone had their own house and backyard. And I felt like, you know, basically everyone had their own families and friends and they would just always stay in their own little silo or container. So it was kind of hard to, like, you know, hang out with kids. Although the neighborhood I lived in was a really nice neighborhood. and We had our own, like, backyard and house. We did experience racism up close living in that neighborhood. So it was awkward. I mean, just being the only Asian family in a predominantly white neighborhood. It's like, you know, people would give us stares and stuff like that. You know, people wouldn't talk to us. So I ended up going to elementary school. First, it was Catholic school, but it didn't work out. And my parents transferred me to public school, which is with a predominantly black and Spanish school. And I think, um, although I always felt like I didn't fit in, wasn't just because of the color of my skin, was because during lunchtime, the kids at school all got their lunch for free, and I had to pay full price for my lunch. I never, never understood that, because after school, I would always see the kids hanging outside the bodegas, eating Cool Ranch Doritos, and drinking like 25 cents juices. And for myself, I never had money to buy those kind of like items. And I remember talking to my parents about it, it's like, you know, I never understood how come, you know, the kids had had got their lunch for free, but I had to pay for mine. And my parents had a hard time explaining that concept to me about how some people are low income. They're telling me this information to a seven-year-old. It's like a seven-year-old isn't going to understand about welfare. So what my dad used to do was he used to, oh, you just give me an extra dollar for those kind of snacks so I could fit in. And I think one of my best friends growing up as a kid was a black kid named Damian Peppers. We called him Dr. Pepper. We became pretty close, and I started hanging out at his house, and he told me he lived in the projects. And I never knew what the projects meant, but the projects were like low-income housing. And I remember just like walking into his building, and it just kind of reminded me of how life was at Valentine's Avenue. But as soon as we walked into his, his apartment, it was like a totally different world. It was cozy. It was comfortable. He always like had like the Atari 2600 plugged into his like Zenith TV. His mom would always make hamburger helper. And he had this older brother named Herschel. And Herschel, he was just obsessed with everything Asian. I mean, he was into like martial arts and he was into Bruce Lee. And I remember when I, went, I walked into Herschel's room and I felt like I walked into a gift shop in Chinatown. He had like, you know, nunchucks everywhere, you know, ninja stars. And he had this like big Bruce Lee poster. He was big into martial arts. And I would spend a lot of time at Damian Pepper's house and his family. But for some reason, my sister would always pick me up before the sun went down. And this is like the time when things start getting good. Because right around like 5 p.m., we would always go outside to like the playground which is in front of projects and Herschel would always bring 
the foreman grill, and they would start having a barbecue. But my sister would always like tell me it's time to go home, and I felt like you know I felt left out again because this was kind of like when the party was about to get good. And I never, never understood why my sister would always take me home before the sun went down. But what I found out was, I think the reason why my sister always like took me home before the sun went down was because things just started getting bad at night in the projects. That's where, you know, drug dealers start coming out of the woodworks. And, you know, that's where the crime started happening. Because I experienced that when I actually was able to convince my folks to let me hang out later when the sun went down at Damien Pepper's house and Herschel and his cousin would walk me home. And I remember walking with Herschel and his cousin and I mentioned that Herschel was like really big into martial arts. I remember he walked me home with a samurai knife in his hand and his in his ninja outfit. But he didn't him and his cousin couldn't drop me off at my house. They left me on the border of the white neighborhood and the projects because they were scared themselves. But as we got older, myself and Damien Peppers, we kind of went our separate ways. And back then, this was before the internet and was easily to kind of lose in touch with people. So I tried searching for him on Facebook, but apparently he's not on Facebook. Oh. So I'm sure, um, Dr. Pepper, if you're out there, here's some cool ranch Doritos for you. Dave continues with stories on family, finding belonging, and giving voice to his story. My mom and dad always had my back growing up. And I felt like, you know, now they're, they're older. I feel like it's something that it's my responsibility to do. So, like, you know, I help them out financially and now emotionally. So my dad, he has Alzheimer's. Mm. So it's funny because I saw him. I'm going to actually see them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But last time I saw him was two weeks ago. And... My dad, when he like walks outside the house, he's always dropping his keys and dropping his wallet. So my mom made a necklace for him for his keys. And I remember my dad made me a same necklace as a kid because I used to always drop my keys in my wallet. So as a way to make sure I always had my keys, he made me a, a necklace. And now we're doing the same for him. And my dad would always get upset at me well, you know, flush the toilet. And my dad forgets to flush the toilet. So every night after I hear him use the bathroom, I just wake up and flush it for him. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, when I close my eyes, he's back in the bathroom and doesn't flush again. So it's like a rotation. And it was also always told me as a kid to wash, wash your hands, don't pick up dirty stuff. And I remember before I left and I told him I was going to see him in, in a few weeks, I helped him wash his hands. Mm. And it's almost like what he did for me as a kid. I guess that's just like typical mother and father things to do when you're a kid. But they also, you know, stood up for me when I was getting bullied. As a kid, you know, I had like learning disabilities. You know, I stuttered a lot. You know, I was really shy. And I always had a problem talking to talking kids and I remember when I was in kindergarten my biggest fear was just being part part of the class 
every morning or Monday morning, first thing in kindergarten, we would all sit in a circle. And we would go around in a circle, and each of us would stand up and tell the class, what did you have for breakfast in the morning? And when it became my turn, what I would do is I would always store in the corner of the class and basically just like, you know, um, curl up in a fetal position. And that was my biggest, biggest fear. That was kind of like, you know, that's how far my fear of public speaking stemmed from right. was since I was a little kid. And what my older sister used to do is we used to rehearse what to say in class. And she says, okay, let's do it again. All right, tell me, what did you have for breakfast this morning? And I'd be like, peanut butter sandwich. I said, nah, Dave, speak a little bit clearer. You know, hold your fist, clench it tight, and just say, peanut butter sandwich, okay? Let's do it together. One, two, three. Peanut butter sandwich. And we would say that like 10 or 15 times. It's like before I go to sleep, after I take a bath, and when my sister would change me, we always say peanut butter sandwich. And I remember the morning I was about to go to, to school. My dad is driving me and my sister. And I remember my dad is driving up to the school. He says, Dave, today's your big day. Remember what to say. Are you ready? And my dad says, are you ready? One, what did you have for breakfast in the morning? And I'm like, Peanut butter sandwich. So when I walked into that classroom, and they go through the circle, and it was when it was my turn, I stood up, and I just felt like just like the adrenaline just flushing through the fingertips of my hands, and I said, "Peanut butter sandwich!" And everyone screamed and yelled, clapping. It's like that was the first time anyone ever heard me talk. Everyone thought I was mute. Yeah. <laughs> I just turned red as an apple. I mean, where do you think that your fear of public speaking came? I mean, because now you're fine. (laughs) That's really interesting because my sister is a social butterfly. Hmm. She had tons of friends. She could talk to anyone. And for myself, I don't know how come I was just so shy. Maybe I was just like a late bloomer. But I just had always had that fear. Maybe, Maybe because of just not fitting in. Mm. You know, from, you know, growing up, from basically being feeling sheltered and alone in that apartment on Valentine's Avenue, and just like, you know, always wanted to be part of the cool kids, and ended up moving to Palm Parkway to a predominantly white neighborhood, and not fitting in there as well. So I just felt like all my life, I always felt like a follower. I always like tried to like impress people. And I felt like later in life that I finally became comfortable with myself after I discovered storytelling. Because with storytelling, regardless of who you are, you know, you're accepted for what you have to say. No one's going to judge you based on what you have to say. It's just something from your heart. And that's what I loved about it. Because I feel like we live in such a judgmental society. And what I loved about it was just getting up on stage telling your story no matter how shitty or how amazing it is and I felt like I had all this like excess stuff bottled inside of me and I felt like it was a great way to like just release this energy 
Hmm. It's like every time I go up on stage, no matter how big or small it is, just getting up on stage feels like really cathartic. It's almost like, you know, therapy. Just talking to like a room through with strangers. And I think um, what I like about telling stories is that it's like, you know, people of, you know, for example, Asian culture. I feel like Asian culture, they're not very expressive. And I think it's just kind of like a nice way to, you know, break the mold, get them like, you know, involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely that sort of like... Cultural barrier. Yeah. Yeah. The cultural barrier also like... I mean, I, I know my parents, we, they really wanted us to kind of assimilate, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, stay under the radar and, like, don't attract attention to yourself, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of, like, um, I guess I'm doing this because for makes me feel good and also kind of break out the stereotypical mold that, you know, we have some good stories to say. Has your parents seen you tell a story on stage? Okay. <laughs> ever, all right. Ever since I've done storytelling, I have not told my parents yet. I'm trying to figure out the day, the proper... I'm a little bit scared. Yeah. I want to talk about this. Okay. I think... Um, I don't know if it's a cultural thing. Because I remember I was like, you know, being Asian... Mm-hmm. I feel like it's almost like from what my parent, my mom always tells me is like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't just like talk too much, you know, basically air out your dirty laundry with everyone. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's kind of like the more you talk, the more you get yourself in more trouble. But I've been doing storytelling since 2013, and there's been a lot of topics I have touched on that, you know, sure, I'll make my folks happy. At the same time, you know, maybe just like upset. Mm. But I feel like I am going to tell them what I do. Because I did a story at the Moth about a few weeks ago about when I got cancer about two years ago. Mm-hmm. And how my parents were behind my back and how, you know, I overcame it and found a job. So once I get that video, I'm going to sit down with them and just show them. But in regards to my sister, I think she knows that I'm doing some kind of performance art because we recently became Facebook friends about a week or two ago. And she actually saw a picture of me on the stage. Yeah, and she says, oh, Dave, um, how was, I guess you're doing spoken word. You like it? I said, mm-hmm. it's okay. But she doesn't realize that it's in front of like 400 people. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And um, you know what? I think they're going to be really surprised. I think really happy because because my sister is going to like you know tease me. I said, "Wow, I remember when you had a hard time just eating peanut butter sandwich. And now you're telling story. You're telling it in front of a whole like four hundred people." That was Brooklyn-based storyteller David Hugh, a Moth Story Slam winner. Dave has shared his stories at the Moth Grand Slam. Risk Podcast and Story Collider. By day, Dave works in IT in Manhattan. Here's Nestor and I on Dave's story. I love uh, Dave's story because he touches on a subject that I'm very familiar with. 
uh, when he talks about stuttering, because I used to stutter too. So I know, I know how difficult it can be just to, just the idea that you're going to talk to people, you like spend minutes, hours, days sometimes planning what you're going to say. Just like he explaining his story, how his sister used to help him uh, practice what he was going to say. I used to spend hours and days practicing and practicing, trying to make sure that I wasn't going to stutter, that I was going to be able to talk in front of the class. And most of the time, it didn't work out. He hinted that it might have stemmed from feelings of not fitting in. Yes, because, uh, you know, you, you don't want people to make fun of you. And when you have a problem with stuttering or when, you have, when you're shy and you start to stutter, you immediately know that not only you might look different, but now you're also going to sound extremely different. And the fear that you're going to sound different makes the stuttering even worse. He talked about trying to take care of both his parents and being their quote-unquote guardian angels, right? The same way they were for him, there is this sense of duty to take care of family. You know, this is, of course, not um, an exclusive feeling, you know, because we're immigrants. Yes, and especially because our parents, if they came here, if they were not born in this country, they had to go through a lot of things that we had to go through, but they went through a lot more than we did. I came here to this country when I was 15 years old, and I went to school, so I learned to speak English. Uh, I learned English at school, and then I went home and practiced to learn how to uh, how to learn how to get better at my English through the TV. I used to watch a lot of TV in English so I could learn a little bit more. But my mother didn't have that. My father didn't have that. They had to be at work. And the little bit that they were learning, were they, they didn't learn it at school. They learned it just by picking some words here and there. Uh, so they went through a lot more than we did. They had a lot less options that we had. Um, not only because of the language, but maybe some of our parents were undocumented. They could not get a really good job. They had to work jobs that were like barely paying them less than minimum wage. Uh, so they went through a lot, and we are aware of that. As we get older, we become aware of that, and then we realize they made life so much easier for me and for my siblings that you know that you had to repay them, or you had to at least try to repay them in some sort of way, because I don't feel that I will ever be able to repay my mother all the sacrifice that she did for me. My mother, um, my father died a long time ago. He died over 20 years ago. But my mother, is, thanks God, she's still around. And she finally retired from working. She had to retire because uh, she had um, arthritis. So she couldn't really go to work anymore. It was, it was becoming really painful to her. And she was feeling really depressed for a while because she felt like she wasn't productive anymore. Mm -hmm. She had been working three, four jobs her whole life. And thank, thankfully, me and my siblings, we have, we have been able to step up. My brother helped her with the payments of the house that she bought a long time ago. And I tried to help her as well, you know, a little bit financially here and there. And I tell her, my mother, sometimes she feels like she's a... Just a burden to me and my siblings. And we're like, no, mom. We like, like I told my mom, like, I'm, there's no way that I could ever repay everything that she did for me. Even if I was to, like, have 
10 million dollars and buy her a mansion and a huge house, it still wouldn't be nothing because whatever I have is because of her, because of her sacrifices. Yeah, I remember hearing some parts of your, you know, your story about your mother and, and of course, my own immigration story with my mother and just kind of this sacrifice, right? And then realizing as an adult that, oh, they gave up everything. And, and not that they didn't gain anything, but that they didn't know what they might gain, possibly gain or lose, but they knew what they were losing. Yeah, and then just realizing, oh, the only way that I could ever even repay them is to take care of them during their old age. And my mother, it was basically by herself because my father died. She basically raised me and my, my siblings all by herself. And she managed to become a USA citizen, managed to help us become USA citizens, and she managed to buy her own house. Like, come on, it's <laughs> unbelievable, you know. I, like, I look at my mom, I'm like, mom, I, I, I could never do, like, with all my accomplishments and all things that I have done in my life, I'm like, no. Kudos to her, and kudos to all immigrant parents. Immigration Stories with Nestor Gomez is a production of 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories. More information on 80 Minutes Around the World Immigration Stories can be found on our website, NestorGomezStoryteller.com and the show's Facebook page. Please contact us if you have a story you want to share or would like to invite the show to your city or organization near you. Immigration Stories podcast is created, produced, edited by Nestor Gomez and Angel Link. Thank you for listening. Please remember to like and share.